Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 60, our gaming curriculum. Recorded Thursday, April 2nd of 2015, with your hosts, Grant and Peter. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. And I'm Peter. Peter, how are you? I'm doing all right. How are you doing this week? Uh, you know, I'm holding up. Been a little crazy for various different reasons, but all in all, things are good. Well, good. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, do we have any news for anybody who's listening today? Well, assuming the uh, Fear the Con 8 Kickstarter is successful, you can meet both of us there this year. Right. I mean, we're assuming that. It's got less than a thousand to go. And about, what, a week and a couple of days left on the Kickstarter as of this yeah, recording? something like that. So odds are good that it will fund. If not, well, we'll figure something out, I'm sure. But if yes, it does that... fund, I got to start thinking of games to run, so. <laughs> All right. Um, other than that, I don't think we've got anything. No, not really. Because we don't, I'm going to take a second and remind everyone, if you haven't reviewed us on iTunes or other podcasting platforms... It is a huge help if you do so. Every review, positive or not, helps us out because it gives people a clear opinion about the show and whether or not they're going to like it. And it gives people looking for it more reviews to choose from. And frankly, the more ratings there are, especially high ratings, obviously, but the more ratings there are in general, the more people will find the podcast and it'll come up sooner for them in their suggestions. So if you haven't gone out and reviewed it, it is a huge help, and we would really appreciate you doing that. We certainly would. In fact, I need to get around to doing that at some point with some of the other ones that I listen to regularly. Yeah, I spent <laughs> I spent a couple hours writing reviews a few weeks ago, just like, you know, I've been talking up all these other podcasts. I should go and actually give them a little bit of tangible help and love. It gives you the opportunity to think about why you like it so much, and mm -hmm. you know, sometimes that can enhance your own enjoyment, or at least I've found that to be true. So nope, you're absolutely right. I had the same thing happen with Game Store Profits. It was like, why do I like this? Oh, yeah, this is why, and kind of nailed it down. It was nice. All right, do you want to start us off with Scripture, or should I? Uh, why don't you take this first one, and then I'll take the second one. All righty. This is Proverbs 18, verse 15. The heart of the discerning acquires knowledge. For the ears of the wise seek it out. And this is Second Timothy three sixteen to 17 All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, Peter, this is your topic tonight, and it's kind of a departure for us, so tell us what we're doing tonight. Yeah, um, in a lot of ways, this is a cluster of smaller topics in a, in a larger super topic, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. I had the idea a while ago for basically a curriculum episode of, of stuff that we find particularly interesting or useful in a gaming context. Um, think of these as a, and that we're going to not go into any kind of depth comparable to what, say, gameable Disney or postcards from the dungeon back in the day went into on any of these, but yeah, or even Sharkbone when they go yeah. into one movie for 30, 45 minutes. Yeah, we're not going to get even close to that. What we are going to do is give you a bunch of things that we have found interesting uh, or useful in a gaming context one way or another from our media consumption over the years. 
some of these are really good. I think most of them are. Um, a few of them may not be, but they're still interesting for gaming. And we've got this broken down into four categories, things that are good for setting, plot, character, and theme inspiration. And then we each have two entries under each one of those. So Yeah, to keep it to a manageable number so that nobody gets overwhelmed. Yeah, we don't want to be here until, you know, sometime late next week. Although there are certain listeners that probably wouldn't mind that much content. I think our voices would give out and we'd lose our jobs and our families. So I would also like to sleep. Yes. Yes, that would be good. Yeah. So should we dig into this? Yeah, sure. Uh, you want to start with setting? Yeah, you're on he this one first, so why don't you go ahead? Okay. So my first recommendation is a book that some of you may have read in high school. Some of you may have picked it up in college. All of you need to read it. I'm serious about this. Uh, this is 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. He is a Nobel Prize winning uh, South American, Latin American author. Remarkably good. And this is on here for setting because in this book, Marquez does a remarkable job of fleshing out the setting of one town and does it almost entirely through talking about the characters in it and their lives. He never sits there and says, and the town looks like this. He leaves it all to your imagination. And it's this magical realism style that is really striking. The book itself is amazing. One of the books that I go back to that isn't, you know, like a, a sci-fi favorite or, you know, a, a book from my youth. This was a book I read on a high school assignment that I go back to time and time again because it is fantastic literature. And the setting description is done entirely through these different points of view. And every GM can learn from this sort of storytelling, this ability to create a world just by letting people live in it. Very cool. All right. What's yours? Uh, my first one is actually the Anomine role-playing game by Steve Jackson Games. Mm -hmm. uh, it uses a lot of Judeo-Christian uh, tropes, I guess, is a good way of putting it, for war between heaven and hell. Um, so you've got archangels and demon princes fighting it out in kind of a world of darkness-y setting. And I thought this one would be interesting to a lot of our listeners because it tackles a lot of themes that I think would be of interest to some of our listenership. Mm -hmm. It's not written from an explicitly Christian perspective, so it has more in common with, say, Supernatural than this present darkness, although the angels are a bit more sympathetic than the ones in Supernatural are. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that way in kind of layering a spiritual element on top of a contemporary setting. And the way that it's set up would... I think it would probably lend itself to different time periods and stuff pretty easily, too, particularly if you use the uh, GURPS version that they did. Awesome. So what's your next one? Right. So my next one comes from the same sort of thing, but very different angle. This is an anime that the English translation is Mushishi. Uh, I think I've talked about this once or twice before on the podcast. If not, I have failed as a human being. This is not a particularly well-known anime. It was available on Netflix for a for a while there. I'm not sure if it still is. Regardless, you should try and pick it up. Okay. There's a fascinating central premise that I think every GM can find interesting in its own right. But in terms of setting, what's fascinating about this is there is only one main character in the whole anime. This is not an ensemble piece. There's one character who goes around from place to place Occasionally, he meets the same secondary character a time or two in different episodes. 
But by and large, it's all about this one person experiencing different places and doing different things there. It's a lovely anime. The art is gorgeous. The setting is fascinating. I can almost describe it as a mage game with a little bit of mystery and a little bit of feudal Japan. <laughs> it's a it's a very strange one. It's a little abstract at times, but very, very good. And the ability to draw a setting that fascinates this particular character and involves this particular character in all of these different ways and tying the central premise of the story into all of these different places that he's visiting is what makes this so valuable. You get a lot huh. out of it. That does sound cool. Yeah, I know you're not a big anime fan. I think you would like this because it avoids a lot of the classic pitfalls of the anime genre, at least as viewed from our typically Western perspective. The ending is very anime, like it doesn't have that nice climax. It instead kind of helps explain and almost usher you out of the story. But other than that, I think it's just marvelous. Well, I've watched and enjoyed some anime. I'm just Sturgeon's Law is very much an effect for me. Fair it's enough. not something that I'm a, a major fan of. But Trigun, I've watched and enjoyed. Uh, Rooney Kenshin, I've watched and enjoyed. Vexil, um, Ghost in the Shell, Standalone <laughs> Complex. This is a, nothing a number of like things. all of those, but I still suspect you will enjoy it. Well, currently you have a perfect record when it comes to recommending things to me, so I'll have to take a look at it at some point. All right, this pushes the boundary. But anyway, what's your next one? Uh, my second one is is another Steve Jackson Games product, GURPS Reign of Steel. If you're looking for a way of doing a AI's take over the world kind of robot apocalypse kind of setting, you really owe it to yourself to look at this book at least a little bit while you're working on it. As is typical of GURPS products, it's very well researched and written and they've put a lot of thought into kind of making the setting work mm -hmm. and also like a lot of GURPS books they haven't nailed down a lot of key players in the world so they give you everything that you need to make it an interesting setting and nothing that will allow you to be setting lawyered which is something that I've always enjoyed about those I really it's it's a unique setting it's an interesting setting the conceit is that Earth has been taken over by these AI warlords and carved up into various territories. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple that could conceivably be dormant and or friendly to humanity. There's there's one that's kind of a mad scientist. There's one that's trying to eradicate all biological life. There's a couple that are working with humanity to various extents. And just by moving around to different geographic zones in the world, you can run across this. There's a lot of material in a... I think it's like a 128-page book or something like that. By far, it is my favorite GURP setting, and that is really saying something. Yes, it is. Awesome. Yeah. So, plots. What's your first one for plots? What's a good thing that somebody needs to pick up or read or watch or play? Well, interestingly, to learn plots? my first one and your first one are going to complement each other nicely because I have Inception, and the thing that I like about Inception, uh, this is a Christopher Nolan movie from a few years back starring Leonardo DiCaprio. It's kind of action thriller, science fiction, a uh, little bit cyberpunky. There's some horror elements in it. It's a really neat film. But the idea is that there are these covert operatives that go in and basically pull off heists in people's dreams to get information out of them. And the thing that I want to reference 
with respect to Inception, which also kind of falls into um, under the same umbrella as your first one, is layered storytelling. There are plots inside of each other. There's like layers of the dream and stuff that you do in lower layers affects layers above it. So they can kind of use these multiple nested realities that people kind of drop through in dreams to get them to open up about certain things. And there's a lot of really neat setting concept there. The The whole idea of just the technology that allows dream infiltration all by itself has plenty of story material mm-hmm. in it, but the entire film and its material taken as a whole is beyond a gold mine. It's like a gold mine inside of a rare earth metals mine next to a diamond mine or something. It's amazing. So that's my first one. Yours is? Mine is kind of cheating. I went with 1001 Nights, sometimes known in Western culture as the Arabian Nights, because that's the name it was published under a few times. This is the frame story of Scheherazade telling stories to save her life, keeping the king who's going to kill her interested, and telling all of these different Arabian and Middle Eastern folk tales all wrapped up into one big frame story with some of those stories serving as frame stories for other frame stories, and it's storyception, as it were. This is on my list, not so much because of plot structure, as here is a massive resource of plots for you to shamelessly steal. These are all classics. Many of these are embedded in our in our storytelling Kind of our cultural conscious, yeah. We all know stories like Aladdin and Sinbad, right? These are all stories that you can just borrow elements from, steal shamelessly from. They all work. These have, these are time-tested stories. And I don't think there's any shame in just saying, you know what? I need a story tonight. Uh, here's an interesting frame for a story. Let me swap out the bits and pieces. And hey, here we go. It works. Yeah, I think a lot of the classics are good for that. Yep. All right, what's your next one? My next one is Pandorum, and this is one of those movies that suffers from a poster that really does not give you any idea of what the film is about. It looks like a sci-fi body horror thing, what with all the cables and stuff going in and out of the guy's arm, and it's not really about that at all. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, my thought was, oh, they wanted to be the Matrix. Yeah, they kind of did, only their story actually makes more sense than the Matrix does. I don't know that I want to spoil this, but I do want to say that this is one of the best examples of how things change when one of your fundamental assumptions turns out to be false. Mm -hmm. If that intrigues you at all, and I really hope it does because the movie is fantastic, go watch this. Go in as, you know, with just kind of that kicking around in the back of your head. And really enjoy the experience that you're going to have. Awesome. All right. My second one for plots. Again, I'm going to cheat a little bit. The New LaRousse Encyclopedia of Mythology. And I specifically recommend the New LaRousse Encyclopedia of Mythology because it is huge. It is a 500-page gorgeous book. Now, is Uh, this something that's still available or is this something you're going to have to track down used? I would suggest tracking it down used because... The hardcover is like two bucks. Really? Used? Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at it on Amazon right now. And um, now so you am might I. Be, <laughs> you, you may want to get a edition that's a little more expensive in case it's in bad shape. 
but it is this gorgeous, I mean, like coffee table book size thing, but it's about 500 pages. It's got these lovely full page panels of various different artworks. It's from 1987, so it's not super old, which is nice because sometimes interpretation of myth changes. What's wonderful about this book is that it is an overview of mythology that is not limited to Greco-Roman mythology. All the Greek and Roman myths that we learned in high school here in the U.S., right? This is African mythology, Oriental mythology of all different types, Pacific Island mythology, mythology of South America and North America. All of this fascinating stuff, all of these elements you can borrow from to create setting details and find good characters, but most importantly, myths that you can borrow from and be inspired by so that you can take those and turn them into plots, whether mythological figures who get involved in a plot or one of the myths about those characters just stolen straight and turned into a story, whatever you want to do with it. This covers a lot of different <laughs> of, of these different categories, but I, I think it works in plots because each of the elements in this something as simple as an urn can be turned into a plot. I mean, this is a book about stories people have told for millennia. You can take any one of those and move it around and change the characters and have a story ready to go, ready for your players to be fascinated by. I don't think this is cheating, by the way. I think this is exactly okay. the sort of thing that I was hoping you would bring. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Yeah, it's it's not one story that you can learn from. No, it is but it's a millennia. It's a it's a so. resource. So it is. It is inexpensive and I think an incredible value. I literally, as a child, would sit there and read the whole thing cover to cover because I'm a nerd, but also because it was fascinating. No, I I think I'm gonna get myself one of these. This. <laughs> I'm I'm also looking at this online, and I think I could have one for like six bucks shipped. So that's, yeah. that's hard to pass up. It's awfully good. All right. So our next category is characters. And why don't you lead this one off? Sure. So my first recommendation is Hyperion. This is by Dan Simmons. It is an excellent book. Peter, I've made Peter read yeah, it. Yeah, I am, I am in the process of reading it now. I will agree that I really like the characters I've met so far. I haven't met all of them yet. Right. And I, I say it not just because the characters are good. The characters are very good. The whole story is a study of six different characters. And that's why I include this. For the purposes of this curriculum thing, I don't care about its sequels. Its sequels are decent. The Fall of Hyperion, I think, is very good. And, of course, uh, those of you who know anything about romantic poetry know that Hyperion, the fall of Hyperion, are works by John Keats. John Keats is, weirdly enough, a major figure in this sci-fi story. I would have to explain and ruin the whole story for you to understand why, but trust me, he matters. Regardless, the cool thing about Hyperion, and the reason I want to include it on this list, basically, it's a little bit of a Pilgrim's Progress kind of setup. You have characters telling stories, in this case, their backstories, as they journey and get ready for a climactic confrontation. Okay. The climactic confrontation happens after the end of the book. Huh. Interesting. So it's in the sequel, or...? Well, it's in the sequel, certainly, but the way the book is written, your characters are heading off, having resolved a lot of their issues by talking about their backstories and telling each other their backstories. And what's vital about that is that this is a case study in taking people from wildly different backgrounds and wildly different perspectives. You mean like a player character group? Like a player character group, 
and linking them all in enough that they have something in common to unify them and unify them in purpose, to some degree at least. They all have different goals, but they all want to make this journey together. And that's why it's valuable. Aside from the fact that it's good science fiction, it's six different characters who are all headed in the same direction, despite having come from completely different backgrounds, sometimes separated by hundreds of years. Yeah, there's there's some interesting stuff in that setting that I've run across already. And Yeah, there's also some good setting details. I have wanted to do a little bit of stuff with the setting, but the characters are really what sells that particular story. All right, what's yours? I think I'm going to do mine back to back and then you can finish off with your other one because these right. two will kind of complement some of the stuff you were saying about Hyperion. So I was thinking kind of along the lines of a player group too. And the first example I have is actually something that you and your wife recommended to me and I was just ravenously binge watching for a while, <laughs> which is the show White Collar, which is available on Netflix. Apparently it's gone up to six seasons and... The sixth season isn't on there yet, but I would say the first four are sufficient. Um, the fifth one, it's they're kind of upping the stakes beyond the point where I enjoy it, and I'm finding it hard to get through. But They've kind of gone past the premise? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, things are getting Fair a enough. little too artificially tense. And But the, um, the idea in White Collar is it's one of those shows where you've got a figure of authority who's a good guy, in this case, uh, an FBI agent named Peter Burke, who's paired up with kind of a former bad guy, in this case, a con man named Neil Caffrey, and they're working together to solve crimes and stuff. The thing that I think that's interesting in White Collar is it's a really good example of how you can have characters that like each other, that respect each other, that consider each other friends, but don't always completely work together and don't always completely trust each other but we'll generally avoid screwing each other as well. Well, actively screwing yeah, each other. Yeah, the, the dynamic between those characters is, is really interesting. They manage to keep it going even when they get a lot more plate spinning. The FBI agent has other agents that report to him that he works with. He has a boss that he himself reports to. Uh, he has a wife. The con man has a landlady um, and a criminal buddy, and most of these people know each other and will team up in various ways. There's an insurance salesman – or salesman, insurance investigator. Oh, I'm glad Sarah isn't real. She'd baton me for calling her a salesman probably. <laughs> um, yeah, it's really interesting. You've got all of these characters with kind of different – I would say similar moral scruples but different ethical or legal ones. Right. They're willing to go to different lengths and approach – problems in different ways. Yeah. And they all have breaking points. That's what's nice is they all kind of have some point, something that is so important that they will violate their moral code. Yep. The other thing that's interesting is um, they tend to forgive each other, <laughs> which is nice. And the show is not all life and death struggles. In fact, most of the time people's lives aren't on the line. It's property crimes. That's one of the things I liked about it. It's pretty lighthearted. I mean, this is not Law & Order SVU. No, and this is definitely You're not, not going to come away list. from it feeling icky. Yeah. It's just, it's fun and stylish. Yeah, the FBI agent and his wife have probably the single happiest marriage I've ever seen portrayed in popular media, and that yep. continues throughout the show and is kind of a, a major source of strength for both of them, which I think is really cool. Anytime when I see marriage depicted positively, I think it deserves a call out. 
it's it's just a wonderful, delightful show on so many levels. You really should watch it. Yep. All right. What's your other one? Uh, my next one is Flashpoint. This is kind of an interesting example of what to do if you get a player character party and they are all you're you're doing like a good aligned game or something and they all wind up playing like these perfectly coordinated paragons of virtue how do you make that interesting still because mm -hmm. i would say with one possible exception everybody on that tactical team this is a it's a Canadian SWAT negotiation and crisis management team mm -hmm. in a fictional city that's totally not Toronto. All right, real quick, what sort of media is Flashpoint? Uh, it is a TV show as well. Uh, this is okay. also available on Netflix. The entire series run is there. I don't know if it's just because they're Canadians or because it's the writers or something, but it's a lot less jingoistic and gung-ho than a lot of similar shows about tactical teams would be. Um, they're extremely reluctant to use violence. They're willing to negotiate with people instead of just shooting and that sort of thing, which gives you some good material there for how those kinds of characters should conduct themselves. It also has enough drama with like the the stresses and pressures of the the job itself and the responsibility that these people carry where there's there's drama in there. It's it's one of those things where there is enough material to kind of give you ideas for what to do beyond just making it just a case of the week thing, even though this show does follow that format. So I would recommend it along those lines. Fair enough. And I will say that Canadian cop dramas that I've seen have always been good. Yeah. I'm looking at you, Do South. Come on. You know, I've never seen that, and I hear it's really good. So uh, yeah, it was. It was fascinating and really funny. And so 90s, it was hilarious. All right. Uh, my second one for characters. This is going to be a big one. I'm sorry. But it is the complete works of William Shakespeare. That could have gone under plots, too. It could have, but I specifically want it for characters. Yes, you can borrow the plots. They're good plots, mostly. But the characters are what we remember. And I don't care where you are in the world. I don't care what language it's in. You can read it in the original Klingon. That's fine. But... The characters that Shakespeare creates are what we remember, and they are archetypes perfectly fine to beg, borrow, and steal from. Everybody recognizes a Prospero. Everyone recognizes a King Lear, a Richard II, a Falstaff, and it's perfectly a okay. Romeo, a Juliet, a Mercutio. Uh, yeah. Well, Mercutio, Romeo, and Juliet are boring and awful. Yeah. But I said they recognize them, not that they like they them. They recognize them. Yes. Don't do Romeo and Juliet or put yeah. them in as sappy, stupid or, teenagers. Or just grab Mercutio and leave the rest of the... Mercutio's great. Yeah. The nurse is great. All of these characters are great. Everybody except yeah. the title Lady characters Lady fantastic. Lady Macbeth, wonderful character. There's so many of these. Iago, come on. Yeah. But that's the point. We can name all of these and you immediately have emotional reactions to all of them because they are great characters. So reading through it... And having those characters as a stable to just whip somebody out and say, yeah, it's this sort of character or a character like this in the same role who is following sort of the same plot for themselves and having the same problems and you just go nuts with it. Any ruler having King Lear's problems is automatically interesting, right? He's got children vying for his throne and he's going mad because of it. Ah, oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's hard to do better for primordial stories than Shakespeare. Right. And, you know, sure, Shakespeare's stories are themselves borrowed. Fine. They're well-written, and the characters he created are what yeah. sell us on those. 
<laughs> it's funny because I think of of this as a plot thing, but yeah, it's it's hard to do better for primordial characters than Shakespeare either. I mean, yeah. most of the archetypes that we recognize in modern fiction started with him. Yeah, and just being literate in those characters and stories will make you a better GM because you will have absorbed a whole bunch of these. And I'm not telling you memorize Shakespeare. Read through it, enjoy it. If you get bored in one, move on to the next, right? I, well, that's fine. And let me plug something else for people that have trouble with the original language. My day job, Barnes & Noble, carries this series called No Fear Shakespeare. It's like a parallel Bible translation. On one side, you've got the original language that Shakespeare wrote. And on the other side, it's translated into much more modern speech. So when you run across some of these archaic terms and you're like, what in the world is this character even talking about? You can just look over to the other page and figure it out and continue on. Yeah. Pick up Cliff Notes. Yeah. All right. Shakespeare, he's probably the most analyzed author in history, I would say. Yeah. Maybe Homer might get there, but... I would say more than Homer. Yeah. Honestly. At least in the modern era. Yeah. If only because of high school literature classes, there yes. has been so many analyses of Shakespeare and so many shortcuts to getting into Shakespeare, you will find something that will make it work for you. I promise. If, if you don't want to read it, I bet you somebody's put a, a stage play of the major ones on YouTube. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you can find... Your, your yeah. local Shakespeare company, and there is one, trust me, they put on shows in the summer... As you become literate in those stories, you'll be a better GM because you will learn so much about making characters interesting. Yeah, and this is this is actually one where I really need to give this to myself as a homework assignment because I'm not nearly as steeped in it as you are, and I know there's well, a lot and, of good stuff there. And I gave up. I was trying to read through all of them, and I just I gave up at some point years ago, and I, too, need to go back and read them. But the ones I have read have enriched my gaming. I can tell you that. All right. Enough about that. Let's move on. Last topic, theme. Peter? Well, the first one that I've got in here is Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn series. And the theme in this one is that, oh boy, there's several, but one of the big ones is evil has won. And I thought that was a, kind of an interesting theme to explore and kind of sink your teeth into. There's also some material kind of on the role that history plays, um, prophecy. I don't really want to dig too far into it because it's it's recent, it's very readable, and I don't want to get into too many spoilers, but go read that trilogy or read the trilogy and the one that's out for the next trilogy. It's some of the most fun, enjoyable, well-written fantasy that you're likely to find sitting on a bookstore shelves. Yep. Uh, you know I will agree with you there. Yeah. My next one for theme is going to be a hard sell for some of you because it is very dark and in places very violent. So if that is not your thing, I understand. If you can handle it, though, I very strongly recommend reading Neil Gaiman's The Sandman comic. It's more of a graphic novel than an ongoing comic. It's got, I want to say, 74 five or 80 issues theme features very strongly in the sandman the first sub series i would say is kind of all about evil and really the theme of the whole thing is dealing with evil that you created and putting a stop to it 
But there are many other themes in it, and there is so much atmosphere in those. In a very fantastic sort of setting, I think they are well worth a read. They are worth a read regardless because they are fantastic as graphic novels. But specifically as a study of various different themes in each subseries, they are very powerful. The first one in particular, the first 10 issues are pretty dark. So do be warned of that. They lighten up a bit after that. So again, if you can't handle that, I'm not saying, oh, you know, you're you're missing out. Use your own judgment. But if you can, they are very powerful and very, very good and great to learn about some of those darker themes and how to tell stories that use those and have an impact without giving in to them. Cool. I've heard good things about Sandman since I was in high school when it was new, and I've just never gotten around to picking it up. I was big into superheroes back then, and, well, actually, that kind of leads into my second one here. I made a last-minute substitution. Uh, Originally, I had Darkest Dungeon in here, and if you want to hear what I have to say about that, go track down the bonus content I did with Mike Perna from Game Store Profits. We waxed eloquent about that for about an hour. It was good. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic game, but I'm going to move on here. Right. The one that I have is Astro City. And this is, I believe it's still ongoing. The one that I really want to touch on, the storyline that I think is is really the, the richest soil that you can pull theme ideas out of, is the Astro City Confession story. Astro City is a comic book series that's kind of an homage to... Eh, mostly Silver Age, I would say, with a little bit mm-hmm. of kind of the post-Iron Age stuff in there. It's a, it's a setting that tries to address what the human impact of living in a, a world where you've got all these comic book heroes and villains is. So the very first issue they did was from the perspective of a father, a single father and his kids that had just moved to the city and kind of how they reacted to some of the extraordinary stuff that went on around them. Mm. The confession story that I'm recommending here, though, is about this kid who is the orphaned son of a doctor, this country doctor who comes to the big city with the intention of joining the superhero community. And he gets into that, and then the real learning begins. His mentor is kind of the Batman figure of the setting, But I think the character is much more psychologically interesting than Batman is. It explores themes of character, you know, who we are as opposed to what people perceive us to be, uh, loyalty, uh, the cost of doing the right thing. It's just, it's a really exceptional piece of, it's one of my favorite pieces of fiction in any medium at all. It treats Christianity very kindly in its story, uh, a couple different varieties of it, actually, both Catholic mm. and Protestant. It's just an unbelievably good piece of media. I, I just I cannot recommend that highly enough. I, th- I think it's it's just wonderful. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So my last one is in many ways the polar opposite thematically of the Sandman. And this is C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Really, the whole Narnia series is worth reading. I bet most of our listeners are aware of that. But Voyage of the Dawn Treader in particular, I want to call out as a study of theme. Because it has a very strong theme. 
I think probably stronger than all of the others in the series. Uh, themes of exploration, of growth. Uh, we especially see that in the character of Eustace, who goes from the worst kid ever to a useful and really grown-up person. And at the same time, there are so many wonderful little adventure locations that are touched on that you get a ton of good gaming material out of it. I have been wanting for a very long time to run a game that is much like Voyage of the Dawn Treader in that it is a journey out into the unknown, finding these fascinating destinations. It has been on my plate for a while. I might talk a little bit about one of the other sources for that game that I've had stuck in my head for ages, but we'll see. But I recommend Voyage of the Dawn Treader because it's, it's got this very warm theme that is explored in different ways in all of the characters, almost without you noticing. And it's very powerful for that, while having so much good gaming material in it. It's very hard to pass up. Well, and C.S. Lewis is never bad. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that's very true. But that one in particular has a lot. All right, and then we have kind of one bonus category down here at the bottom. Yeah. It's generally useful RPG books originally written for something specific that we wanted to recommend. Yeah, and I wanted to call this out specifically because I did not want to include game books in any of these major ones because we're kind of wanting to get outside the RPG genre. Yeah, I know. I kind but of cheated on the first entry, but... That's okay. We're probably going to do another installment of this at some point, by the way, because we both deleted at least as much as we've told you it, as we were working on the outline. It was kind of yeah. funny. We were sitting there and it's like, eh, put this in. No, that, that would get deleted and something else would yeah, get typed A little in. better, a little better. Yeah. But there are gaming books that were written for a specific purpose and a specific setting and a particular kind of game. I'm not talking about a, a generic supplement for a generic system, right? We're not talking like GURP Cyberpunk or the Savage Worlds Explorers Edition, right? right? We're, we're talking about something very specific that we use all the time for other games because it's so useful and should be something that you read just to understand that element. My, my vote in that category is a D&D 3.5 splat book for the Eberron setting called Sharn City of Towers. Sharn is the major metropolis in the Eberron setting. It is New York writ two miles high. I don't want to get into all the, the details of it, but it is a massive urban fantasy setting. It is a setting unto itself. And that's what makes it wonderful for me. This book does a marvelous job of explaining all of the considerations that go into having a fantasy city and how they play out in this particular setting and just all of these awesome ideas for things to have in a city. It's mostly applicable to fantasy, but it works in any sort of fantasy. And many of these ideas of just how cities work apply to cities regardless of genre. Honestly, I got into the Eberron setting. I really liked it. I could just run games in Sharn for months and months because this book does such a good job of explaining the setting and really making it feel like a living, breathing, awesome city that has actual people in it. Huh. And I take those elements out to cities. A lot of the stuff that happened that is in that book I've used in the Shadowrun game. Really? Uh, yeah, and it's not even elements I've borrowed directly. It's just 
an understanding of the kinds of things that cities need and cities have and cities have going on and fantastic, cool things that can happen in a city. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And I will say, because it is a D&D 3.5 splat book, I guarantee you can pick it up cheap. Yeah. I know the PDFs are available, I think, on DriveThruRPG. Drop a couple of bucks and pick it up, or flip through it at your local game store if they happen to have a copy. I should check and see if I've got that in my stack O three point five books. I was buying them like crazy back in the day. I have enough to fill a bookcase, I kid you not. Yeah, well, trust me, our game store had enough for two. <laughs> it was impressive. All right, what's yours? Uh, mine is... Maybe not quite as generally useful, but I think it's worth reading to kind of break yourself out of a lot of typical D&D-esque role-playing thinking. And that's World of Darkness Innocence, which is basically children against supernatural threats. So if you've ever wanted, if you've ever seen that movie Monster House and wanted to run that as an RPG, this would be a good uh, book to pick up. It deals with how children are different from adults in terms of how they handle problems, how they react to things, what they have in terms of capabilities and that sort of thing. And I think I think it's good in a couple of different ways. First of all, like I said, just as a, a philosophical exercise, I'm not really big on running kids or child characters in my games, but I think it's I think it's good to kind of have something that makes your your brain work down different passageways a little bit every once in a while. Yeah. And this is definitely that. And then I think it's also good for some advice on maybe not running horror as quite so gruesome and terrible, and also how to actually have characters that aren't just butt-kicking demigods and still have a good game. Yep. I will say that uh, Chrissy played a Innocence game at Fear the Con 5. Yeah. And as somebody who had really not done any gaming... She really enjoyed that game. Good. It worked very well for her, and it was very relatable, and it didn't have that same sense of power fantasy. It was, oh, hey, we're kids, and we got to figure out how to deal with this. This is hard. Yeah. It was really good. You know, come to think of it, another thing that would be interesting to read along these lines, and we've recommended this before, but Todd Zerker's Trouble with Rose mm -hmm. is another good kind of think along those lines, because- that can be anything, but a lot of the time the characters are not your typical adventurers. Yeah, works well. All right, we've got a little extra time, so I want to branch out real quick. And off the top of your head, Peter, okay, give me one work that isn't necessarily something that everybody needs to go out and read or watch or play, but which has impacted your gaming. It has been part of your personal curriculum and has affected this, your style of gaming. Oh, boy. That's going to be a tough choice. All right. While you think of that, I'm going to tell you mine. Okay. So there's a Japanese console RPG. It was for the Super Famicom. Never came out in the U.S. officially. I admit I played a translated ROM in college. Okay. Basically a Super Nintendo game. One of the, one of the last games actually released for the Super Famicom before the N64 came out. And it's called Bahamut Lagoon. It's by Squaresoft. It was not your usual RPG. It had a little bit of RPG elements, but it was actually more of a tactical turn-based combat, moving 
squads around on the map. Okay. Using abilities with different ranges, getting into combat uh, directly, that sort of thing. But the style of the game was just gorgeous. And it was melodramatic as only a JRPG can be. Okay. Especially a Squaresoft one. And the music was not as good as it could have been. The main theme was really good, and the rest of the music was just incidental and kind of bland, which is unusual for Squaresoft in that era specifically. But I was blown away by the game because the theme and the setting were amazing. Remember I said that I've had this Voyage of the Dawn Treader kind of thing going on yeah. in my head? This is the other piece of that, because the setting is a infinite world of sky with these islands floating around and everybody's flying around basically on ships that are made of islands or on dragonback basically you have squads on dragonback acting as kind of fighter planes slash assault squads and the whole thing works beautifully it's basically a world of aircraft carriers huh and at the same time there are these wonderful it's got this great sense of loneliness that's what really i think attracted me at one point, one of the villains kind of has a, a heel face turn and you end up caring for him as he dies. And his last wish is to just be set adrift in the hopes that his coffin lands on some out of the way island where no one will ever remember him. Wow. And it's just got this really great sense of infinite expanse and loneliness that works beautifully. And so this game I've had in my head has been, you know, characters on Dragonback trying to reach something that they think is out in one direction, but may just be a myth. And they're going from island to island to island in the sky, finding progressively stranger and more wild and foreign and fantastic things until they get to this final whatever. And that's this idea I've had rattling around in my head. And it's almost entirely based on Bahamut Lagoon. Huh. It's really neat. Very difficult to get a hold of. I don't think there's been an official translation yet, but really a neat game. Well, mine is probably going to be Jagged Alliance 2. This okay. is much easier to get a hold of. This is an old... It's on good old games, isn't it? Yeah, it's on good old games, and I think it's like 10 bucks. It's an older squad-based tactical game in the same vein as XCOM. And the premise is there's this little tiny insignificant country, probably in Central America, but it's not really specified, that's been the recent victim of a coup. And the guy who was supposed to be in charge of this country was actually a, a pretty good guy. And he managed to escape alive from an attempt on his life in the overthrow of his country. And you are the head of this mercenary company that he's hired to basically liberate his, his country because none of the first world nations can be bothered to care. So you start out with this tiny budget and this little tiny team of these kind of quirky mercenaries, which once again should sound a little bit like a player character group, and you go about trying to liberate this country. The thing that I think this game does particularly well that is a skill that I would like to master but haven't yet is this kind of understated letting you realize the significance of things without having to beat you over the head with it. Hmm. There's one particularly chilling thing that happens kind of in the middle of the game. You uh, you roll into this town and you've got this person that you pick up very early on in the game who's kind of your tour guide and narrator as addition to a member of your squad. And you come across this university campus. She's like, yeah, the, you know, the queen shut down all of these schools and everything. And she's just very kind of matter of fact about it, you know, how the 
the school has been shut down. Well, as you go through and start trying to clear enemies out of this campus, you start finding bloodstains and unexploded ordnance and that sort of thing. And you come to the chilling realization that this school was not shut down by chaining the doors while everybody was out. She sent the military mm -hmm. in while classes were in session and there was a massacre. Oof. And it's never explicitly stated, but you can pick it up from the evidence that's around. And that makes it so much more impactful and makes you really want to take this villain down. Right. One of those great uses of implied setting. Yeah. And the thing is that I think is really cool about it is this game came... An implied story, I should say. Yeah. This game came out in 1999. Mm -hmm. So it's not this graphical marvel you know it's not super photorealistic or anything it's pixel art and it still works so yeah i i think that one's really good it's a tough game it's a really complicated fiddly game but just kind of keeping the idea of like the implied story and you know that's that's definitely worth taking from that one all right and awesome. since you sprung a surprise question on me, I'm going to spring one right back on you. Na All right. Recommend one other podcast, and it can be one that you've recommended before or a new one that you think all of our listeners should be listening to. All right. I'm going to give you one that I haven't recommended very often. Okay. Dakota Ring Theater. I don't think you've ever mentioned that one to me before. Oh, that's a shame. I have done you a disservice because Dakota Ring Theater does old-timey radio show pulp dramas. Oh, really? But they're not written like old-time. Like, they have the same style of them, right? The the cheesy organ music and some of the, you know, gee willikers kind of conversation. But it's modern humor, and they are very funny. They are very engaging dramas, specifically The Mask of the Red Panda. The Red Panda Adventures is kind of the whole series. Um, they've got a couple different sub-series, but the Red Panda Adventures in particular are wonderful because what it turns into is, you know, this mystery man and his clever girl sidekick. And it is a mystery man. It's not a superhero. This is the guy in the fedora and the trench coat. And, like, he's got hypnotism as his one superpower because it's kind of that 30s, we're not going over the top with powers. He's got something clever he's a scientist you know just as a quick aside you're you're talking about this mm -hmm. brings to mind something i think we would both heartily recommend which is planetary uh yes planetary is amazing i don't know where to recommend it but you should just go read planetary yeah you really should just go read planetary <laughs> um but what's cool about red pan adventures is it doesn't try and stay in that milieu it starts in the early 30s and progresses past World War II over the course of just a few years of content. Huh. And so the world changes, and these characters kind of get left behind by the 50s superheroes in tights shooting lasers out of their hands and having super strength, and they're just trying to catch up. Right now, they're trying to find a way to retire because they've lasted longer than they have any right to, and they'd like to enjoy their life. So... It doesn't get old because the characters and the world move at a realistic pace. So they're basically trying to find one of these new superheroes to inherit their rogues gallery? I don't want to get too spoilery on that front, but it's not still 1933, right. 100 episodes in, right? Wow, that's really fascinating. I'll have it's to give that really a shot. It's really cool, and I strongly recommend it. All right. Well, mine is almost going to be cheating because I'm just going to recommend Gameable Disney again. 
I think the reason why I keep coming back to this one and why Grant enjoys it too is they get further below the surface than even I think PFTD and Sharkbone, which are both excellent podcasts, ever did. They'll go into why specific story devices do or don't work. They go into um, why specific characters do or don't work. Why, you know, what that works really well in a movie wouldn't work in a game. What isn't working in the movie but would be absolutely wonderful in a game. I just, I think kind of the clear-eyed view that Chris and Katrina have of kind of how all these storytelling elements work together even if you never have the desire to game in a Disney setting, and I, full disclosure, I really don't. I, it Maybe Hunchback, possibly like the Rescuers, but most of the Disney settings really aren't the sort of thing that would make me want to game in them. And yet it's still one of the most valuable resources you can have in your podcast feed. Okay. I think we've hit on enough things that people have enough resources to go out and start buying and downloading. Yeah, I or think at the so very too. least, you know, looking online and reading and and understanding them. So feeling bad about their backlog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that too. So there you go. Uh, if you have your own, leave them in the comments on the episode or on our Facebook or Google Plus page, or tweet them at us, and we'll you know tweet them back and share them around because we really like to hear what your recommendations are. Yeah, we really enjoy hearing from our listeners about this stuff. Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing about it. So from all of us here at Saving the Game. Well, both of us. Yeah. Have a good one. Take it easy. Yep. We'll see you next time. Goodbye, everybody. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.